Welcome to, no, to another episode of The Linguist Radio. I am Nora De Palma. And I am Pamela Pizzurro. And I'm Darinka Mancino. <laughs> Words are considered to be a mysterious contrivance of communication in our everyday life. The power of well-chosen words can inform, influence, educate, and entertain others. The impacts of words on different people varies because it depends on their understanding and in what manner they conceive it. Our profession as interpreters consists of believing in this power. And when I think about Darinka Manjino, I think about the epitome of the power of words. Darinka Manjino is a conference and court interpreter for, for Spanish, English, and French. She holds a master's in advanced studies for interpreting trainers from the University of Geneva, Switzerland, a PGC in forensic linguistics from Aston University, United Kingdom, and a university degree in conference interpreting from Instituto Superior de Intérpretes y Traductores in Mexico City. She's a member of the International Association of Conference Interpreters, ICE, and the Mexican College of Conference Interpreters, CMIC. Darinka is an adjunct professor for interpreting and the founder of Lexica Aula Virtual para Interpretes, and founding member and a founding member of Proyecto Sotle. Darinka, welcome. Thank you so much for, for being here with us tonight. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing fine, and uh, the pleasure is mine. Thank you. Thank you, Nora. Thank you, Pamela, for this opportunity to join your amazing project. It's starting, but I'm sure you have a long way to go. Thank you. Yeah. We Thank are you. so honored to have you, and I was telling you, uh, we are a little nervous to have such a big name with us. Uh, we admire you, and We want to get to know you a little more, and we want all of our colleagues to know about you in case they don't know you. But I guess my first question is going to go along the um, same path as my introduction. So what kind of feelings do languages evoke in you? Ooh, if we talk about feelings, plenty, plenty depends. Feelings as an individual or feelings as an interpreter, because there are, there are two completely fields that we could talk about. But uh, if we talk about the power of words, some, sometimes languages tickle, sometimes languages make you feel mad, sometimes languages can make you travel, sometimes languages, it's, uh, languages are magical. So, but they are also used as a tool. And in terms of tools, you can use them for many, many purposes. That is why I found myself feeling in my element when it comes to words and interpreting, because I've always been fascinating, fascinated about the, the how words can be used. So, so well, it, it, it's, a, it's a very interesting question. I've never been asked that. And uh, I think that uh, languages give me almost every feeling uh, that exists in the mind uh, of a person. And uh, that uh, takes us to the complexity of being an interpreter because we are someone else's words and uh, words convey feelings. And uh, in, some, in some settings where interpreting takes place, that is the hardest part to convey the feeling and the emotion and the intention of someone's words. 
because it's not only a word, it's, it's a capsule of many things, but uh, oof. <laughs> I think uh, uh, I, I want to say a lot of things, but uh, in terms of the languages that I speak, for example, I, when I speak in, in English, for example, I'm more organized. And uh, when I speak in Spanish, I probably do as most Spanish speakers in Latin America do. I run around in circles sometimes. And, uh, and in French, well, I, I always feel uh, the tickles that I, that I mentioned at the beginning because, well, my partner is French. So whenever I hear French, I have a special connection with that language. But, uh, but I think that uh, the, the, the most prevalent feeling when it comes to languages is awe. I love that answer. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing answer. Uh, Thank so, you. Tarika, tell us a little bit about how, how you started as an interpreter. How did you, when did you decide to become an interpreter? And Well, uh, I didn't decide to become an interpreter. Interpretation knocked on my door. And I think that is the case of many interpreters. Mm -hmm. Then when I realized how beautiful that professional path could be, I decided to become a professional interpreter. But I started as a translator. Uh, I started translating books at a very early age. I was in, in high school. And uh, back then, I lived with my family in a small little town in Hidalgo in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, not many people spoke English, and I was the only one who could speak and write English, and uh, I was willing to translate some very technical documents that were needed for my mom's uh, job, and she, she was working at a, at a project where they were going to build a hunting reserve, so... And uh, that's how I started translating those uh, guidebooks and everything they needed to build, all the pens and everything needed for, for this reserve. So uh, then I did it because I was asked to and I, I, I liked it, but I, I didn't thought that it was a profession until I had to choose my profession. And uh, since I was a little kid, I always wanted to be an astronaut. And uh, everything related to that uh, project, it was obstacle after obstacle. So it was a very hard pursue professionally. So then uh, I, had, uh, uh, I had the privilege of uh, having a very insistent grandmother who helped me find uh, a school. In the meantime, we could... Uh, we could find a university who had a program that would interest me and and uh, then I just okay I will take this this program on translation and see what happens afterwards and uh, I I like translation very much but the first time we were asked to interpret as one of the obligatory practices, then it dawned on me that that was what I wanted to do. And uh, I, I turned my eyes to interpreting, but I didn't know that interpreters existed or what uh, was actually the, the possibilities that uh, I could aim for until I was there interpreting in, in that uh, booth at, uh, uh, at the ECT. So then everything changed. So instead of finding obstacles after obstacles, it was like a clear and open path in all senses. And I, and I 
world became uh, an, an interpreter that way. Do you think that that is kind of, do you, do you think that has changed? Because I feel like interpretation and translation is still not seen as a profession. It's seen as maybe a skill, but not really something that it's formally taught in an institution, in a, in, in a university, in a college. Well, uh, we are a young profession, so that, of course, had to do a lot with my knowledge of interpreters and translators as professionals. But yes, it has changed enormously. I have uh, met uh, many interpreters as students when they, when they come to my classes, when I ask them the question, how did you decide to be here? And uh, you, you hear people who read a book about an interpreter or saw a film, the interpreter, or, or this film about, uh, I, what's the name of this film where the aliens come from outer space and there is this oh, one who yes. interprets, I forgot the name of it. I forgot it well, too. But that, uh, so you can see like the, the great generational gap of people who like me that did just, oh, I'm, I can do this. And then you choose uh, a program and develop your skills. But I think that now it's mostly a, a well-thought decision. And I'm very glad that things have changed that way. I agree. So the future of professions in 2019 is not the same as the future of them now. Uh, kind of like goes along with what we were talking about. Has your perspective about the future of our profession, has, has it changed? Not, uh, not really, not really. And I think we have talked about that question for a long time. Mm -hmm. But I think what changed was the reason why what we were preparing for came to us so suddenly. We thought that it was going to be in artificial intelligence stepping into the booth or some other technologies, but not a, a virus that would overnight would change how people communicate. So I think that uh, what has changed was the pace in which we have had to adapt to this new reality, but the skills will be the same uh, in general. Of course, we will have to, to learn and develop new skills, but uh, we have seen this happening in many other points in history. So this is the point in history that we are experiencing with our own eyes. And that is why it's so, so complicated and scary because we don't know what is going to happen, but we, can, we, we, have the, we have associations, we have knowledge, we have standards that can help us pave the way into the road that we want to take our profession. Yeah, and this, uh, by the way, is a question that came from an interview that, that Inga had with um, Terpwise. Uh, if, if this is the, the name of the podcast, and I 100% recommend it. This was one of your students, that, right, Inga? Yes, yes, uh, Terpwise is a project by Veronica Gutierrez, and during that interview, I was interviewed by Ariel Elbaz. Uh, an excellent colleague from the French booth. And uh, yeah, I have uh, helped him develop some skills. Awesome. Um, how, uh, I'm sorry, um, on January, you wrote a post on the uh, Ike website about 
how you survive your professional crisis. And I would like to touch a little bit on that. Um, this is, I believe, has to deal with more with clients, but you managed to twist it, you said. How did you get there? Well, I, I am based in Mexico City, so the market here, as I thought back, back then, was very unique, was very special, but it turns out that every market has its own traits, and, but there's also many, many commonalities between our markets. So when, when that happened, I just couldn't, couldn't um, take, like, not being given what I needed, that uh, I felt misunderstood by my clients. So I, in a nutshell, felt like a victim of my very dire situation. And uh, it coincided with the moment where I decided to take a, a master's in the University of Geneva on training interpreters. And uh, I decided to use my thesis to analyze that situation. How can I prepare better and how can I communicate my needs better to my clients so we can work as a team instead of expecting them to give me everything I need? Because as a new profession, we need to do a lot of training in terms of letting people know what we do and what are the, the tools that we need to bring to the booth and what is it that the client needs to contribute with to make this communication team work? Because it's a, it's a shared responsibility. So when the moment I understood that, I became more selective in terms of, okay, this is how I want to work and this is what I can offer. And this is somehow a new culture that I can create instead of clashing with an existing culture that I won't be able to change just by insisting, give me, give me more information. So I decided to be more proactive and feel less as a victim. And that uh, changed my, my situation uh, enormously because I feel more in control because I have a methodology that I can use to prepare and anticipate the things that uh, we can anticipate in interpreting, which is a lot, but sometimes we, we think that, oh no, I, I was not giving any conference preparation material, this is the end of the world. But actually there's a lot out there that uh, we, can, we can get a hold of uh, just by looking into the right places. And sometimes the right place, of course, it's, it's our client because they're hiring us for that purpose, but sometimes they're busy with other things and we need to wait for the right time to ask the right questions. So yes, I survived my professional, my first professional crisis. I know that there will be many, many more, but uh, in terms of preparation, I have survived and uh, I have managed to create a method that I have been able to share with um, many, many interpreters to, to help them overcome situations similar to what I lived because I was even considering living interpreting because it was so stressful. I felt so, so, so sick of it. And it was my perception. The moment I changed the way I did things, it changed completely everybody's experience. You were going to say something, Nora, sorry. Yeah, sorry. I was like, oh. <laughs> do you, so are you giving a class or for these methods or is there a, 
in the future will you give a class or yeah can you share a little bit basis. more about those methods thank you thank you yeah thank you. it's uh, it's known as the speaking preparation method Mm -hmm. And it's the basis for most of the trainings that uh, that I give. And I give trainings through my, my own project. I partner up with other colleagues, depending on the topic we are, we are discussing, or sometimes associations come, come to me and ask me to develop specific courses. But it's uh, every, most of what I teach is based when it comes to preparation and that view of, of things, which is based on an ethno ethno-linguistic analysis of how communication works. Okay, so um, this method is basically um, written and taught by you. You just mentioned that you also can adjust it to different uh, clients that ask you for specific things. Now, my question as an interpreter is, do we have to have a basis? Uh, where does an interpreter um, ha has to be, where, where does an interpreter have to be to be able to take your, your class and learn this method? Well, there are all the, most of the courses that I give, because I also teach at universities for beginners when interpreters decide to, to become uh, students of a program. So that's a, a different stage in an interpreter's professional path. Most of the courses that I give are professional development courses. So the, the method, it won't work if you haven't been exposed to a real interpreting assignment. Mm -hmm. And uh, this method, it's, uh, I developed it as my thesis, as I said, but uh, as everything of value in our profession, it has to be based on someone else's research. So I took the research of Bellheims and Claudia Angelelli, and I merged these two theories into what I thought could be useful for our preparation work. So it's my addition to two theories that already existed. So in, and that's what, um, we see in other fields of interpreting that more theories are being developed. Some theories are taken from other disciplines and that is what makes the strategies or the methodologies that we see right now stronger and useful to most interpreters because we are used to, to hear what works for a colleague and uh, if we use it, we try it and uh, it works, we tend to incorporate that into our practice. But that defaults into the practical side of interpreting. But when it comes to analyzing the, the act of interpreting, you need something more substantial. And there, there are many, many, many theories and interpreting studies have advanced so much in the last 30 years that uh, it's, um, that's why we go to programs to study interpreting because it's a skill that needs to be based on something more than just a trial and error. Right, right, right. So you're a, a conference interpreter, correct? Yeah. That which we 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 love we love that part of interpreting for conference interpreting. Can you tell us a little bit more about what does it entail? And, and what's your favorite, what do you love about it? Ooh, one of the things that I love about uh, conference interpreting a lot, which is changing, is traveling. 
uh, I think that uh, the main difference between conference interpreting, well, there are many differences, but uh, when it comes to traveling, conference interpreters, we travel to the conference venue. And uh, as you can see here, uh, you, you, you can travel from one country to another, and that doesn't happen when you work as a community interpreter or as a legal interpreter, because you are based in a geographical region or, or a specific county, for example, and there is where you provide your services. Now I provide my services from where I am, even as a conference interpreter. But, uh, and the, the difference is that uh, when we, it's very hard to define what conference interpreting is. And there have been many efforts to come to a definition. And still we don't have textbook definition of what it is. But uh, the most practical way to put it, just to understand how a conference interpreter would work in contrast with other types of interpreting is that, let's say, at a conference, people get together to hear about ideas or topics that are of many people's interest. That is to say that people would come to listen to someone speak about something. And uh, the people going to that conference are not representing themselves. They might come on behalf of a company or they might come on behalf of a country. That is to say that you will have delegates or representatives of an institution or an entity. And, in, and that creates a, a complete different scenario that you would find in a doctor's office, for example. If you advertise, uh, we're going to talk about how bad is that Inca's stomach ache. No one will come to that conference, but because what happens at a doctor's office or at a lawyer's office pertains to the individual. So it's mm -hmm. uh, their legal status or their health status. So the, the names might be a little bit confusing because community interpreting is also described as public service interpreting, but the main differences that I see is that uh, it is about the private life of an individual and ideas and topics of interest of the public at large. So that, that separation takes you to interpret as a conference interpreter the ideas of companies, the ideas of countries, the ideas of uh, individuals that are public uh, in, in terms of uh, what, they, what they do. So that creates a completely different world, especially if we go back to your first question when it comes to feelings. Because in conferences, people don't touch don't talk much about uh, about feelings. Well, it depends on what type of mm -hmm. conference. But uh, let's say that in in conferences, the the words and the ideas that we interpret are more objective, are detached from the individual, so to speak. And in other fields of interpreting, it's all about the individual, the individual's body, the individual's freedom and. Uh, that separates completely the types of, of works that uh, the, the type of work that you would get as an interpreter. That is very, very interesting. I actually never saw it that way, um, mm -hmm. but it's, it's sounds very accurate from what I've seen because I'm, I'm, I also became an interpreter for all the reasons you gave previously. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you are a conference interpreter and also a court interpreter. Uh, people, 
I don't know if there is anyone who doesn't know you, but if there are <laughs> colleagues who don't know you, you're also a diplomatic interpreter and a presidential interpreter. I've seen um, several of your interviews online uh, talking about how you have interpreted for presidents. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the big names out there that you have interpreted for? Well, one of the basic tenets of being a, a diplomatic interpreter is discretion. So I will answer that question with a lot of discretion. Yes, I have interpreted for kings, queens, presidents, heads of state, uh, activists, Nobel Prizes, uh, Nobel Prize awardees, rock stars. So yes, uh, we as a diplomatic uh, as diplomatic interpreters, we we are the voice of our countries. And uh, if mm -hmm. you see how how many visitors come to our countries, not uh, as tourists, of course, but mm -hmm. uh, you can imagine the wide variety of public uh, personalities that uh, a diplomatic interpreter interacts with. So so yes, uh, the the list is very long. And uh, well, you, you won't see it on my on my Facebook page. Some some things are on LinkedIn if the if the picture is public and it's been published by someone else. Sometimes people tag me, and you would see some some of the names there. But I I, I think that uh, most uh, diplomatic interpreters we have interpreted for the most relevant public figures of our time. So that's a, a huge responsibility, a huge privilege, and uh, it's uh, it's another avenue if uh, if an interpreter is aiming for uh, uh, an other type of interpreting. It's a uh, it's of course a very interesting path that requires a lot of studying, a lot of uh, oh stamina, and uh, many other skills that you will only use in this type of interpreting but it, I can say that it's fascinating and uh, and uh, the, the sad thing is that I can't talk about it. Right. Yeah, you, yes. took, you, you took the word right out of my mouth. It sounds fascinating. I love it. Um, I, I, I picture it as as being on a I, I did theater for for a couple of years so to me it's like you are one of the stars of a show, if not the star of the show, and you have to get ready, you know, in order to to get on stage and and basically go live, right? Kind, kind, yes. Right? Yes, of you, course. Do you do exercises like mouth exercises in order to, right? Yeah, yeah, just like actors do before mm -hmm. going on stage. Of course, we have to. We have to, otherwise, it's uh, it's like not tuning your instrument if you're going to play. If you get nervous while while you're about, how do you control those nerves? Those, of course, of course. The the day that I don't get uh, those tickling sensations mm -hmm. before a relevant, an important interpretation, I would I would worry. But uh, I think I uh, uh, starting at a very early age, I I learn how to control my anxiety and my stress because I did uh, track and field for, for a long mm -hmm. time. So that moment when you had to go to the starting line and hear someone just giving you the, 
the, the goat. So that uh, taught me a lot on how to control uh, my body because yes, my knees would shake. Sometimes uh, when you're very stressed, you want to cry, you want to go back home. When did I decided to, to do this? Am I crazy? Yes, all of those feelings. Yes, yes. Uh, but uh, I've managed to control that long, long ago. So taking that skill to my professional life was pretty easy because I know how how it worked uh, physically and mentally as well. And uh, well, being in front of, uh, of the whole world can be very stressing. So, but, but it is what it is. If you can't control your, your nerves, you, if you can't cope with stress, diplomatic interpreting is not for you because it, it gets stressful. Now, uh, I guess, of course, it requires a whole lot of preparation and studying, but what takes you to that level of being a diplomatic interpreter versus being a conference interpreter? Well, it, uh, it depends because every country is different. Some countries have a clear, very clear path. There you, some, in some countries, you, you take tests. In some, mm. some cases, depending on your language combination, uh, it, uh, sometimes you have only one interpreter of that language in that country, and that interpreter does diplomatic interpreting, conference interpreting, court interpreting. So it, uh, it's hard to generalize, but uh, in my case, it just as interpreting knocked on my door, that possibility knocked on my door and I decided to take it. And of course I had to do some, some tests as well, but uh, I didn't panic and I didn't faint the first time I had to do it. So, so uh, it, uh, it was an opportunity. That's awesome. That's, that sounds fascinating. And um, something that I would, I, would I would personally completely look into uh, eventually. Yeah. So, um, Darinka, you have uh, Lexica, Aula mm -hmm. Virtual, which is a website that you created. And this is for, as you told us, a continuing education for interpreters, translators as well? Mostly interpreters. Mm -hmm. Recently, I've developed uh, a course that is aimed to literary translators, but that's the only option that I have for translators for the for the time being. I'm mostly an interpreter, so that's not uh, my field. But yes, most of uh, what I do is aimed to helping interpreters do better uh, by honing on their skills and by learning new skills. And uh, what I like the most, because I've been a, a trainer for more than 10 years, and um, I've trained large groups, small groups. And what I like the most when it comes to helping my colleagues do a better job is working on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So most of, uh, I, I do have large webinars and I do organize large courses, but uh, where I really see changes and I and I can I can see how a skill flourishes is when I work on a one-on-one -on -one basis so so yes my my type of teaching is more like a boutique type but uh, but yes it's uh, it's it's fascinating as well to be a trainer of interpreters because it's uh, developing a skill is it can be very very complex right um 
do you have something you have a question nora i'm sorry if an interpreter uh or translates interpreter wants to book a private lesson with you how would how would one go about doing that you just have to write me an email and we can talk about uh, what you're looking for because it's uh well it's described as coaching it's uh, mm -hmm. a, a word that means many things but uh, we need to to confirm that uh, my style of teaching and training is what you're looking for because uh, it's a it's a very private thing so to speak to to get personalized training so if you don't like uh, how i teach probably i'm not the the best trainer for for you so first we need to confirm what you're looking for and if i can help you because i can i, I don't do miracles unfortunately <laughs> but it requires a lot of uh, a lot of hard work I'm, I'm just like the guide and i have the tools and i can give people advice on and how to do a better job, but in some cases, and in most cases, is the the other side, the interpreter who has to do most of the work. And sometimes people expect that, okay, I'm here, use your magic wand and uh, make me the best interpreter in the world. I can't do that. So if you like to work hard, and uh, uh, and uh, well, most people who come to me like perfection. So. Uh, I, I'm a perfectionist as well, but uh, sometimes it's uh, being a perfectionist is not the best thing that can happen to an interpreter because you become anxious about many of the things that you can do and you don't do those because you want to make things perfect. So it's, it's a vicious cycle that I, that I have helped many people break and uh, enjoy, enjoy because sometimes we worry a lot and we don't enjoy what we're doing. And that's what makes a difference. I think that's more for translators, right? Mm, <laughs> I mean, the perfection, you know, I, when I used to translations, it's like you always are looking for the perfect term. But um, mm -hmm. I was going to tell you about the, the um, courses that you teach. This all came from your studies at the University of Geneva. Um, Tell us a little bit about that, because I think that since Europe is such a small continent with so many countries, with so many languages, interpretation there is a must, basically, like you have to, right? Yes. Um, here in this part of the world is, uh, as you said previously, becoming more common, thank God, but... Um, <laughs> Tell us, how was the experience at the University of Geneva and how enriching was it to you to incorporate this as part of your uh, professional life now? Well, it was a, a great experience uh, in that part of training interpreters. It was the, one of the best things that could happen to me because I was able to confirm that what I was doing was not wrong because sometimes without the right training and sometimes as it happened to me, I was offered to teach an interpreting class and I got ready. I read everything that was available on the internet about interpreting. So I, I did my homework, but still there was nothing there to prove that I could train interpreters. So when I found out about this program, I just decided that I had to take it no matter 
how high the cost was, whatever I had to do, I, I would do it to take that program. And, and I did, and I did uh, learn many, many more tools to train interpreters. And uh, the idea here is to, to understand that uh, what you learn in a master's is based on, on theories, it's based on solid research. So if you have that, you can take it to your country and you can adapt and adjust all of those, uh, those teachings and the knowledge to what suits your, your local needs. Because in, in training interpreters, we can talk about many things in general, but uh, you need to know where the interpreter is going to be working to make it relevant. So that really, that experience, it was wonderful because I learned from, from the best. And also I had, uh, had the chance to meet new interpreters who are really the, the best trainers that, uh, that, I, that I knew back then and, and they are, they are with the, with the right tools that we learned, we have managed to make ourselves better trainers. And I really enjoyed the, the experience in, in many, many senses. So, so yes, we see that uh, Europe is the cradle of many things. Europe was the cradle of a certain type of interpreting because in our countries we have a long tradition of interpreting that uh, is not taught in universities, for example, yet like indigenous languages and uh, well, in, in Latin America, there were many other languages spoken before the, the, the Spaniards came and there were translation studies as well, because, but uh, somehow it, uh, it hasn't been explored, but, uh, but we, we hope that that changes soon. How many, how many years did you study abroad? I have two masters uh, in total, around five. <laughs> nice. That's nice. That's very nice. So tell us also then a little bit about Proyecto Sensotle. Thank you. Proyecto Sensotle is a new project that uh, we, we, a group of interpreter trainers based in Mexico City, we decided to team up to offer quality training for professional interpreters. And this group is made up by Georgian Weller, who is well-known worldwide, uh, Angelica Ramirez, who is uh, the uh, subtitling and dubbing guru in, in Mexico, and Maria Fernanda Arambula, who is one of the best court interpreters that uh, we have, and she's a very good trainer as well. So we are in the process of deciding what uh, kind of uh, training we're going to put up. We, we have one that it's coming up soon um, in September for court interpreters. So that's our first uh, joint effort, but it's thought for Mexico, but of course, everybody's welcome because there is a lot of uh, what well, we need to, to train a lot uh, when it comes to, to court interpreting in Mexico because it's, it's, it's new and uh, well, quality training is needed in that area. Will you um, be, go ahead. Will this be online? These, these trainings will be Will be online. Yes, this first one. Yeah, we we were planning to to have an in-person classroom training, but with the pandemics, we had to 
change plans and this is our plan B, but, uh, but since we're based mm -hmm. in Mexico and uh, the way we have designed the courses and we, we were planning to take people to courts and to see, oh. to actual witness how things are, are done here in Mexico. Well, that will have to change for this edition, but uh, next year we hope to do it uh, as it was originally planned. So, so you're if... welcome to come next year. Right. Awesome. I would love to. Thank you. Uh, will you be teaching any indigenous languages? Uh, well, uh, unfortunately, I don't speak any indigenous language yet, but uh, I have given training for my colleagues from the, who speak uh, indigenous languages. But uh, if uh, I'm not the right person for that, but you can contact Carmelina Acateco. She has uh, many interesting options coming up, or probably they're already available, but you have to contact her. She's based in the United States. And also here in Mexico, there are many interesting initiatives, but, um, but we have many options. So you would have to choose from the 369 languages that we have in Mexico if, if you're interested. And of course, it adds up if you go down through the map, there are many, many other indigenous languages in the continent. So, so I, I don't teach any indigenous language, but uh, I, some of uh, the, the courses that I have, have I have uh, given some sessions to my, to my colleagues and specifically the, the speaking method and some techniques for court interpreting. Would this, would this Maybe, maybe uh, a, an idea that you would consider for Proyecto um, Sensontle. Sensontle. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sensontle. the name, the name. Uh, I should have started by explaining what the, the name yes, means, mm -hmm. because uh, 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 one of my hobbies is to be a bird watcher. So when it oh. came to deciding the name, we had many options, and we found out that the Sensontle, which is the the name in Nahuatl for the mockingbird, well, the mockingbird was a, a very symbolic figure for pre-Hispanic cultures. It represented the word, but the word of people in power. And uh, you, if you visit, uh, uh, I can't think of a specific uh, mural, but you would have at the, the Tlatuani, for example, and next to the Tlatuani, a Sensontle painted on the wall. And also, I think it was the 100 pesos bills, you had Sensontles and Sawalcoyotl's poem to Sensontles. And the, the mockingbird, it, uh, well, it can imitate any sound. Mm -hmm. So the Sensontle specifically is known to be the bird of the 400 voices. And that's what we want to do through Proyecto Sensontle to give each interpreter and translator the, the wings to make the best out of their voice because we have our voice, but we will be the voice of, um, of the people we interpret for. So it's pretty symbolic. And uh, the next time I get that question, I should start with that because it has <laughs> a beautiful meaning. And the word uh, Sensontle, it's also beautiful. The bird is not that pretty compared to others, but uh, not many birds can can change the, the way they create sounds as in a versatile way as this and something like that. So, so that's basically the story behind the name and the project. That's a beautiful story. And the name is an Awadl name, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that would be something that if, if you 
open up a, a box of, of recommendations or suggestions, I would definitely write it down. Maybe that you guys can consider expanding um, something into um, indigenous languages because just as Europe has all these languages that are mm -hmm. uh, needed for their culture to stay alive, I think that that's definitely something that we as uh, Latin American Hispanic culture has to do is keep alive those all those languages to have a history. And that is, uh, I don't know what you think but um, about this, but I think that interpretation and history are pretty much sisters. Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. There, there are many, many links, and there is a, there is a lot about the uh, history of uh, translating and interpreting. There is this website, Histel. It's from the university. It's, it's a Canadian university, H-I-S-T-A-L, and it's precisely a website where you have records of the first interpreters that were, were known in history and translators, uh, interpreters and translators. So there are many, many interesting stories there. And we interpreters, we make history every time we, we go to work, depending on, of course, the, the function or the, the event. But uh, it's, uh, it happens so fast and it's what we do every day that we, when you look in retrospect, you think like, oh, I was there. It was a momentous conference. So that's, um, that's uh, one of the bright sides of uh, of being a diplomatic interpreting, interpreter, for example. But when going back to indigenous languages, we can expect many changes because in 2022, the, the United Nations has declared the decade of indigenous languages. And last year was the year of indigenous languages. So I'm sure we can expect mm -hmm. uh, many changes on that front because uh, it's every, every language is valuable, yeah, but um, but some languages are spoken more for a variety of, of reasons. So there, there, there are valid reasons to, to use a language and practical reasons as well. But, uh, but the more we learn the languages, the more speakers will add up and that would ensure the survival of many languages that are only spoken at home and sometimes not even at home. In my case, I should speak uh, Maya Keshi, but uh, my great grandmother didn't teach her children out of shame, and I should mm. speak German as well. But my 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 grandfather decided not to to teach German to his children for for different reasons. So that shouldn't be the end of the tradition of speaking the language of, of your family. And in Mexico, that's the reason why many people don't speak the indigenous mm -hmm. language that was spoken at home because it was frowned upon. And right. uh, the, the beauty of indigenous languages is so evident. So why should it be frowned upon? But we know the reasons and we know that there, yeah. there, there you could have a, a separate podcast for, for that. <laughs> when yes. you have uh, uh, indigenous <laughs> languages here telling their story and uh, what uh, they've gone through. And that's what exactly what I was going to say. Uh, we, we hope, Lord willing, to have a podcast dedicated to Indigenous languages. 
Um, many, not just one. one. Many. Yeah, many. Not just there are one. so many. many. <laughs> Three hundred and sixty-nine. So, it's uh, yeah. oh yeah, you, you can to... spend a year just with the languages spoken right. in Mexico, and uh, there are many, many interesting stories that you need to to hear. So let's get, give it a little bit of a twist now to this very interesting um, set of questions that we had a, about Proyectos en Sotla and indigenous languages and, and, and our lexical Aula Virtual. I would uh, like to ask you about the resources that you consider are cutting edge or maybe not so well known for other colleagues that maybe searching for other opportunities, maybe you can share a little bit about that. Platforms, things that you know that may not be so well known. Well, if you had asked me that question two months ago, I could give you many, many names. And I'm sure 80% of your listeners wouldn't know about. But now with the pandemics and everybody trying to to find out how to step into the world of distance interpreting of RSI. I believe that we've heard from every provider. We've heard from colleagues who know uh, technology very well as the back of their, their palms. So I don't think I can provide anything new from what is out there already. And there we've, we've all had a like webinars about technology available and we joined many amazing sessions given by by colleagues who have decided to share what uh, what they know about but the thing is that uh, we interpreters are lagging behind in terms of uh, how much technology is out there and how much technology we use compared to translators so mm. if i could add my two cents to this discussion is that uh, I'm, I want to explore what actually translators are using right now and how can I use that into my interpreting work? Because there are many, many tools available for interpreters and I love them. I love, uh, I love the tools that have been developed by interpreters for interpreters, but still sometimes if someone like me, I translate and I also interpret. If, for example, I, I had the privilege to translate the documents that would be used in a meeting, it, why not using the same tool that I use for translating documents into my, my booth work? Because it, it's already there and it, mm -hmm. these are tools that have been developed for 30 years or, or more. So right now we see many, many tools, but uh, I, what I would like to see is how we can merge the tools that we use for other purposes into what we really need in, in the booth. So I, I haven't seen I haven't seen any of the suppliers of tools for translators merging with the tools that have been developed for interpreters. So um, I'm making an experiment with another colleague, Nora Diaz. So when, when we have the results, we, we will of course share those results with you because we, we don't need to reinvent the wheel when it comes to tools related to language. But uh, we do see some some novelties. But uh, I, I would uh, my advice would be to identify 
the tools that can merge more tasks into one. And there are great tools like Interpreters Help, Interpret Bank, and many other add-ons that, uh, but the thing is that when you're working in the booth, if you had to add something else, and if you had to add an additional tool, that's extra work. Mm -hmm. But if you can have everything centralized, depending on what you actually need, when it comes to managing documents. And when I say managing documents, sometimes, I mean, hundreds of documents and glossaries and terms that uh, come from a convention. So, so there are many, the, the tools that we need are out there, but sometimes having those available in the right space, in the right uh, um, interface, that's, I believe, the the issue that we're experiencing right now because we need now during this transition we need to manipulate more tools more hardware and mm -hmm. if we have to incorporate mm -hmm. more software additional to the platform that we're using that becomes complicated and we all go instinctively back to basics so so pen and paper of course mm -hmm. <laughs> it's useful, but uh, we need Out to think in, in, other, in other terms. Yeah. But uh, uh, I don't want to be unfair and just mention a couple of names and not mention right. others. But uh, I think that uh, there are many, many posts are there, videos and webinars that uh, can do a better job in terms of listing all the technology that it's out there for the benefit of interpreters and translators. So I think we, we, we need to ask translators to share more because we are some, somehow disconnected and they do wonders, but they, they do their own thing. They have their own associations. They, we don't mingle that often with them. So uh, well, why not having a translator in your podcast? That would be a, a good idea. Yeah, we're looking into that um, <laughs> very soon. We're going to have someone from here from the United States, but we would also like other um, associations out of the United States to tell us about translation um, mm -hmm. and the world of translation. But yeah. go ahead, Nora. <laughs> so when uh, Nora Diaz and you come up with, you finish your project, you should come back on show and tell us all about it. We'd love to hear it. Um, anyway, speaking of tools and, and whatnot, I get a lot, of, a, a lot of questions about headsets. What's a good headset for an interpreter, especially, you know, like noise cancellation headset? I know that you were, um, you gave a, a webinar with Hita and you mentioned a couple of a couple of brands what's your recommendation yes well i think that when it comes to recommendations we have to be very careful because mm -hmm. the best headset is the one that uh, fits and feels comfortable in your ears in your head and uh, of course there are basic features that you need to be very careful about and recently we have heard a lot about acoustic shock which is a reality and if we are the ones that during this transition will be deciding which technology to use in our homes we need to choose technologies well the hardware that would protect your ears internally and externally and we we are used to 
to our computers and we turn on the volume and mm -hmm. uh, turn it up, turn it down. So we are used to using our computers for watching movies, for listening to music. But when it comes to a professional use of uh, your device, you need to, we won't be able to control the things that a technician would control in a traditional booth. So we need to compensate that by buying the right technology. And that is, of course, going to be more ex expensive. So you need to either buy an external tool that regulates sound peaks or buy headsets with that technology already incorporated. And uh, there, there are as well many, many, many colleagues who have talked about that. For, for example, in my case, I, I never cover two ears, mm -hmm. so I need a headset that allows me to do this and where I can change the, the microphone. In, when when I want to use my left ear or my right ear, I need something more flexible. I don't know if you can do that with your headsets, Nora or or Pamela, but but that's a, a personal preference. So sometimes if you're going to be wearing headsets for uh, a full day. Sometimes you find headsets that are heavy and you will have to move them or get some rest so you need to and, and it's very hard to try a headset if you buy them on the internet so if if whenever we are allowed to go shopping it's uh, worthwhile just trying to see how it feels and also to identify what are the features and in order to check sound ranges and frequencies and all of that there are tools on the IEC website and uh, the standards that um, that are used as a basis for setting up uh, traditional booths and fixed booths and, and studios that uh, give you the range of sounds that you need to consider when it comes buying headsets. But for example, this one that I'm using, which is the SC60 USB ML by Sennheiser, I like it very much. And apparently the experience on the other side is, uh, is good, but that's 50%, you need to protect yourself as well. So right. this one doesn't have ActiveGuard. So I just mm -hmm. ordered the SC70 also. So, and that has ActiveGuard. And this one also has the volume control. So I can oh. control from, I can mute my microphone here. I can I can adjust that additionally to what I can adjust on, on my computer. So the list is very long. And uh, you can you can look for for all the recommendations that are out there, but you can you can either look at the specs and see okay this one complies to what I've heard that is like the most advisable thing, and when you put it on, it's unbearable. So it's not the right headset after all. So you need to 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 know your your head and. Uh, <laughs> and try what is uh, to compensate, but uh, we need to protect our hearing. So, so that should be uh, an aspect to consider. And that of course will increase the price, but it's worth it. We are yeah. worth it. So, so consider that. Quick, quick question. Um, you, you mentioned protecting our hearing. As interpreters, we're always listening, right? We have to, of course, it's what we do, but do you, have you ever 
do you, I mean, do you recommend getting our ears checked every once in a while, taking out the wax to make sure that we hear oh, better? Oh, okay. I think that is something that, that, that as interpreters we should do. Yeah, don't get anything in your ears. <laughs> no matter there's works in there. No, no, that's what the doctors say. Don't, don't get anything into your ears. And yes, of course, we need to to check our hearing every year. That's right. the mm -hmm. recommendation because yes, it's going to wear out. We like it or not, and uh, we need uh, we need to to get ready for that and and take care of our hearing because if we if we are careful with our ears um, and every every individual is different, so it's good just to have a parameter to to see if everything it's in the right level because it's not it's not a new thing that wearing headsets will cause damage. Of course, we were not born with headsets. So that's something external that we are adding to our lives and it, uh, it will affect our senses somehow if we're not careful. And that is why protecting our hearing in these new environments is so important because right now you are wearing special microphones and you are careful about that. But if you been in a, in a Zoom meeting or in a conference call where people don't wear headset or wear cheap headsets or drop things near the microphone. So that is, uh, that is an external source of stress for our hearing and uh, we're used to being in the same room. So our senses become Go, go crazy because right now you don't have your microphone open and you are in a quiet environment. But when you are in a room with 10 people and you listen to their own environment, it's, uh, it's confusing. Mm -hmm. So it's not only that we need to take care of the, uh, of the potential acoustic shocks, but the, the actual experience of being exposed to so many environments in, in one session, it's, uh, it causes a lot of fatigue as well. That's very interesting. I, uh, I completely agree with that. I have never interpreted for a conference, but I, we both can relate to that. It's not only the uh, voice that sometimes is too low, too soft, or the environment that it's very loud. It's also the entire, um, what do you call it? The ambiance, I guess, uh, mm -hmm. of, 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 emotions and everything rolling in there. Yeah, I agree. Um, so Derinka, we have talked about, uh, we have covered quite a bit about interpretation and translation. We have covered feelings that languages evoke in us and um, a little bit of history, a little bit about everything, I think. If you had to go back in time and start all over again, would you choose interpreting again? Definitely, I will. But I would have asked more questions about how would I make my living? Because when I started, when I was uh, in my university years, I thought that I would get a job, that after university, I would be hired and I would have a job. And it turned out that I would have to be a freelancer because in Mexico, there were no staff positions for interpreters. There were plenty for translators, but uh, I decided to go for, for interpreting. So in that sense, 
I, if I could have changed that because freelancing came to a surprise to me, I, I liked it and I'm not complaining. I've had a very, very happy professional life, but uh, it required in my case to develop skills that I didn't have and that I didn't like and I still some don't like very much, but I have to if I want to to continue in this path. And uh, uh, but yes, definitely. But I would have asked more questions about uh, how to do things right from the start. But I was very lucky and I'm very lucky still to have had uh, interpreters with more knowledge than I have to 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 help me in different stages in my career so i've always had a had a mentor so so that helped me a lot but still uh uh if i knew that it uh it wasn't a traditional job uh, i don't know what were what would be the what would have been the choices that i would made back then because i had to learn many things the hard way and uh, well such is life and and with that, what is the best advice that that you were given, and and what's what's and what what's the advice you can give to future interpreters or to interpreters now? Ooh, I've been very lucky to have been given plenty of advice in different points in my career. But uh, I think that right now the piece of advice that comes to to my mind, and it was given to me by a dear colleague who 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 left us a month ago, and uh, she she always told me is Maria Dolores Lebrum Marina Beitia. She she was an amazing interpreter and uh, and uh, a great colleague and friend and. Uh, she always told me, if you want to get to the, the peak of the mountain, always aim for the stars. So, so every time when things got difficult, she would uh, remind me of that. And, and yes, it, it works. It, uh, you have to always strive for, for more. And uh, it, uh, it's, sometimes it's an uphill journey in many in many senses when it comes to interpreting and if you aspire to get uh, to to places that are outside of your comfort zone you will need a clear aim otherwise you would get lost so the stars are are good a good a good guide so i'll always be grateful to my dear marilori Yes, thank you, Darinka. I will have one more question for you, and that is if you can share the classes that you're given currently, maybe dates that uh, people can register with um, Lexica or with Proyecto. I don't know if, um, if you have dates already, but whatever. Thank you, thank you, thank you for that. Uh, uh, I usually don't have the opportunity to talk about uh, all of my training, so that's that's uh, very generous of you. Please thank you. talk about so, all of them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, tomorrow there is one group practice that I have with my colleague Maha at Meruali, and uh, we have uh, a group where we join the Arabic booth and the Spanish booth, and we work together. 
and uh, try out different technologies and we give each other feedback. So that's unfortunately sold out, but we have mm. that practice every every 15 days. So if you want to join the next one, and it's not that you have to speak Arabic and Spanish. No, it's just uh, because in international conferences, you have the Spanish booth, the Arabic booth, and mm -hmm. the Chinese booth. So we, we try to replicate that in these times where we won't be able to just to sneak our heads and say hi to to the other booths so that's why we decided to title it that way i have also coming up a special course for interpreters who are working on their spanish as a, as a working language it's a it's a short course it's six hours and uh, it will be devoted to Latin American Spanish because uh, there are many, many nuances and many difficulties that uh, knock on the door of our booths when we're interpreting and the idea is to be prepared and have the right strategy ready and even for Spanish speakers, sometimes when we translate from Spanish into a different language, there are some times where you don't know what to do and that we don't want that. So this course is aimed to give you tools to avoid not knowing what to do and uh, trying to anticipate the issues that Latin American Spanish poses to interpreters. Then I have, uh, uh, and that's um, June, that's 20, the 20th and the 27th of June. Uh, it's online. All the courses that I have coming up are online. I also have another course coming up in August, the 1st of August, about interpreting insults from English into the, the language that are uh, the colleagues who decide to join speak because as, this is especially aimed for court interpreters because sometimes we panic, sometimes we change the registers, sometimes we increase the level of, uh, of whatever was said or we reduced the, the intention. So when it comes to accuracy, that's, uh, that's an issue because in court, we have to be accurate. And if we go back to your first question about feelings, well, that's what the judge wants to, to see. What was the person feeling? Because feeling tells you the state of mind. Mm -hmm. So if we think things that way when it comes to interpreting someone else's insult towards a different person and if we are the person uttering that feeling it's very complicated and uh, but we can we can also use strategies to make the right decision so that's that's uh, the second webinar and I also have a course on consecutive interpreting coming up in June and that's uh, the, the way I teach consecutive. I like to have a very small group of interpreters, no, no larger than five people. And we work on everybody's needs as a group and through individual sessions. So it's a combination of coaching interpreters individually and having group practices. And it has turned out to be a very good, uh, good method. And I think that's it. And well, of course, I have some 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 spaces for for private coaching sessions. Awesome. Great. And um, for those who haven't seen the YouTube video yet, uh, Darinka has a YouTube video okay. interpreting <laughs> <laughs> interpreting um, 
remind me his name he is I, Noam, it's Noam Chomsky yes and it is it's just you have to watch it I, I have no words <laughs> oh, the words is, escape me because you if you want to learn consecutive interpreting in the right way Go take a course with that Inca Manjino, please. Thank you. Um, you you yeah. just remembered about uh, another another class or? Yes, yes, okay. I forgot to mention. Well, we talked about the Proyecto Sensontle class for court yes. interpreting. So, so that will take place in September, the online version. And that I will teach it in tandem with Fernanda Aramula. And you're going to send us all these dates so we can publish it on sure. the Facebook page on Thank the Linguist. Of course. So anyone, go ahead. And links as well. The yes, links. yes. Sure. Uh -huh. sure. can do where where to you. register. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Would love yeah. That. I think we are all hungry and thirsty for as much <laughs> training as we can, right? Yes, oh, that's absolutely. good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Darinka, it has been a pleasure, an honor. I have, <laughs> I'm, I'm the Rinka's fun, in case oh, you cannot tell. So Number one fan. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but um, it has been, I hope, helpful for most of our colleagues. And uh, we will have all the dates and all the courses and links if you want to and are interested in registering for one of the Rinka's classes. Thank you. I don't know what else to add. I don't know if you, Nora, have something else. Um, I don't know if our viewers have any questions. Maybe I haven't seen any questions, seen any. but we have had some viewers, which I'm, I'm happy about. Um, I haven't seen any questions posted, but I, I think pretty much we covered as much as we could, right, today. Thank yep. you. Thank you for this invitation. I'm very glad to, to be one of your guests. It's an honor. If, if you're ever in the Houston area, please give us a call so we can meet up. Thank you. Thank Absolutely. you. I, I will whenever we're allowed to travel. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes, of yeah. course. So congratulations for your new project, and I wish you the best. Thank you so much. Thank Arinka. you so much. It Thank was you, a, everyone a else, for, for watching our show.